You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's a watershed moment for gay rights as the Supreme Court ruled in a landmark case on Monday that federal law protects gay and transgender workers from job discrimination, giving millions of LGBT people in dozens of states civil rights they'd sought for decades. Gerald Bostock was one of the plaintiffs. I'm overwhelmed with joy, and and my heart is filled with with gratitude. It was a 6-3 decision with Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Neil Gorsuch joining the courts for liberals in the majority. One of the biggest surprises was that the majority opinion was written by conservative Justice Gorsuch, although perhaps there was a hint during the oral arguments that he would interpret the word sex in Title VII to cover sexual orientation and gender identity. Let's do truth serum, okay? Wouldn't, wouldn't the employer maybe say it's because this, was, this person was a man who liked other men? And isn't that first part sex? My guest is Steve Sanders, a professor at Indiana University's Morris School of Law. So, Steve, explain why this is a landmark decision. It's landmark for a number of reasons, June. First of all, it's the first time the U.S. Supreme Court has delivered a major gay and lesbian and transgender rights decision that was based on the interpretation of a federal statute, something passed by Congress, as opposed to a constitutional decision. Constitutional language allows you know, for broader discussions of concepts like dignity and evolving social understandings. Statutory interpretation is more limited, yet Justice Gorsuch found a way through his method of interpretation to say that an existing law dating back to 1964 on sex discrimination also encompasses discrimination against gays, lesbians, bisexuals, and transgender people. It's also landmark because this extends federal law to protect employment in all 50 states. There has been no federal law expressly addressing sexual orientation or transgender discrimination. Only 21 states have such laws on the books. And so it's significant because it extends the reach of federal protections for gays, lesbians, and transgender people in a significant way. And finally, the third way in which it's landmark is the author, you know, a a textualist Donald Trump appointee to the Supreme Court who delivered an opinion that I think many people would not have expected. And if it doesn't, you know, scramble our ideas and preconceptions about what it means to be a democratically appointed justice versus a Republican appointed justice, at least it shows that those debates can be limited and often constrained. Justice Gorsuch said, only the written word is the law, and all persons are entitled to its benefit. Did he really stick to textualism in his opinion? Well, so this is a debate that I think will continue to rage in law reviews and scholarly discourse and so forth for a while. You know, what does it mean to do textualist analysis? Here's what Justice Gorsuch said. Justice Gorsuch said Congress in 1964 issued a very broad mandate that employers may not discriminate because of sex. The critical assumption that he makes or the central argument that he makes is that 
when you are considering a person's sexual orientation or you're considering their gender identity, you are invariably thinking about their sex. And if you take action against them, the disadvantages them, you fire them, you refuse to promote them and so forth, you are taking into account their sex. A simple example, you have an employee who's a man who wants to date a woman. Fine, the employer has no problem with that. You have a female employee who wants to date a woman, and the employer does have a problem with that. The employer has taken account of the employee's sex. The employer is basically saying, I believe that women should date men, but that women should not date women. They are discriminating against the person based on what sex they belong to. And similarly, if you discriminate against a person who now presents to the world as female, but whose birth certificate says they are male, and you take action against that person, yet you don't take action against a person who is male and whose birth certificate also says male, you are taking into account their sex. The, the critical assumption here is that the text of the statute says sex, and that when you discriminate against people because they're gay, lesbian, or transgender, as part of that decision, you are inevitably making some judgment about proper behavior for a member of their sex. Justice Samuel Alito's dissent was stinging. He said the arrogance of Gorsuch's argument is breathtaking. What problem did he have with the writing of Gorsuch's opinion? Well, again, from a technical standpoint, I think part of it gets to what does it mean to be a textualist? And different academics and different justices uh, may disagree on that. But what Justice Alito is saying is you can't think about the word sex in the language of the statute without also bearing in mind what that word meant to the people who wrote it back in 1964. And it's pretty hard to argue with the idea that in outlawing discrimination on the basis of sex, the Congress in 1964 would have imagined that they were also protecting gay people, lesbians, transgender people, and so forth. Justice Gorsuch responds that no, you know, sex is sex, and we have to interpret what it means today to go back in time and say, well, Congress couldn't have imagined that is not really textualism. It's more a form of originalism. It's like, what is the original intent of this law? Who was it intended to protect and why? So we're getting into the nitty gritty of some debates between originalism and textualism. And I think Justice Alito's perspective is more the originalist perspective. Um, secondly, I think, you know, a lot of Justice Alito's arguments boils down to, in a practical sense, come on, everybody here knows that this is about people's sexual orientation and their gender identity. To say it's a matter of sex discrimination is a sort of formalism, which is, is game playing with words and semantics, but is failing to confront what the real issue is here. These are gay people. These are lesbians. These are transgender people. They believe they have been discriminated as such, not on the basis of their sex. And finally, I think, you know, maybe Justice Alito just couldn't have imagined a decision like this from a Republican colleague, from someone who is known generally as a judicial conservative. So there may have been just a, a sort of sense of betrayal here that something Justice Alito could not have imagined would happen. And I think you're right. His dissent was 
impassioned and outraged. And part of it is I think he sort of felt betrayed. A lot of people are reading into the fact that Chief Justice John Roberts assigned the writing of this opinion to Gorsuch. Well, so that's right. The Chief Justice, when he is in the majority, controls the assignment of the opinion. So let's assume for sake of argument, although we really don't know that Chief Justice Roberts, you know, voted on this side from the beginning. He could have assigned the opinion to, say, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I think we would have gotten the same result, but a very different opinion. This opinion from Justice Gorsuch is a landmark decision for the treatment of LGBT people in employment law, that is different from saying it's a sort of manifesto of LGBT equality, or that it's a roadmap for the future of the LGBT rights legal movement. It doesn't stray beyond the narrow question of Title VII. I think we would have gotten a much different sort of opinion with different words and also different music from one of the court's more liberal justices, say if Justice Ginsburg had written this opinion. She wouldn't have taken the textualist approach probably. So, you know, there's some speculation that Chief Justice Roberts gave it to Justice Gorsuch because he knew that the opinion would be, yes, seismic in its immediate effects, but also more narrow and limited in the way it might be extended into other contexts. There's also some speculation that Justice Roberts may have flipped his vote, that he may have been on the other side of the issue, but, you know, couldn't write an opinion that could get Justice Gorsuch's vote. And, you know, those are things we'll just never know. Justice Gorsuch has gotten a lot of criticism from conservatives about this opinion. Are they reading too much into this decision, perhaps projecting that he'll side with the liberals in future cases, for example, abortion cases? Well, I I think I would actually frame it a bit differently. I wouldn't say that this was necessarily an ideological deviation for Justice Gorsuch. Again, Justice Gorsuch has a sort of distinctive and pretty rigorous and doctrinaire, actually, approach to reading and interpreting both statutes and constitutional texts. That's the thing we've called to what called textualism. Textualism doesn't guarantee conservative results or liberal results, although it often is associated with a more sort of conservative, slow-moving, backward-looking understanding of the law. So no, I think Justice Gorsuch would say, and I think he'd probably be right, that he's being entirely principled. He was simply following where his method of reading a statute led him, and it led him to this result. By contrast, I am quite certain that his same method of reading text would lead him to the conclusion that Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided and and to more quote-unquote conservative outcomes in lots of other areas. But the people who say they're disappointed in this, I think, are missing the point of lifetime appointments for Supreme Court justices and federal judges, and that is we expect them to be independent. We expect them to apply sophisticated legal analysis and legal judgment and not be looking over their shoulder about the political consequences if they their legal analysis and legal judgment leads them to a conclusion that may, with some people, be unpopular. Now, Justice Gorsuch said that we don't purport to address bathrooms, locker rooms, or anything of that kind. So is this limited to employment situations, to you know whether or not you can get fired, or is there any room with this decision for lower courts to expand it to other areas? 
It's certainly possible. I, I mean, it, it is limited to to Title VII, which governs the the, the conditions of employment. Um, uh, so it's not about public accommodations. It's not about housing. It's not about education. That kind of thing. But some of the reasoning in the decision could be extended to those other areas, to federal laws that govern, for example, education, Title IX, housing, uh, the Fair Housing Act. Those also. Uh, uh, forbid discrimination because of or on the basis of sex. So it is not uncommon for federal courts to take certain language and the way it's been interpreted by the Supreme Court in one area of the law and to import it into other areas of the law. So this could potentially have wide-ranging impacts. I think as for the issue of um, bathroom segregation and so forth, that's a, a related but, 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 but distinctive question. Um, you know, is it, is it discriminating against a transgender person to say uh, uh, what bathroom they must use? You may be in conflict with their sense of their own gender identity. That is not necessarily the same thing as saying you are taking an adverse employment action against them because of their sex. But, you know, again, a, a sort of conservative approach to the law says one case at a time. This case presents one question. These other questions will come to us possibly down the road. And on the basis of full briefing and argument, we will then figure out what the right result is in those cases when they come to us. Some conservative Christian organizations are saying their concern that this decision will affect how they run their own institutions, many of which don't allow LGBT people to work there. Will it have an effect on, on those institutions? Well, if you're saying in, if by institutions you mean uh, churches or, or 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 organizations that are directly controlled by a church, no, there is already something called the ministerial exception to Title VII, which says for uh, uh, people who are engaged in religious ministry, they have a First Amendment free exercise of religion right, and, and so that's why Title VII can't be used to force a Catholic church to hire female priests. So so that is well established. Now, there's another case before the Supreme Court this term that is grappling with how far that extends, who exactly counts as a religious minister, and so forth. But now, if you're talking about a business that just happens to be owned by a person who has particular religious views, um, then this decision does apply to them until uh, courts rule differently or find an exception for religious liberty. Um, there, there is no no ex- exemption in Title VII uh, for people, uh, for business owners just based on their religious beliefs. Um, there is, however, a requirement, and this could be important, that Title VII only applies to employers that have more than 15 employees. And so truly small businesses with fewer than 15 people will not be affected by this decision. Are we overestimating the impact of this decision for gay rights? The decision will have a practical impact. It no doubt will arm some people who have been fired or mistreated in their jobs with legal tools they didn't previously have to go into the federal 
EEOC or to go to federal court to vindicate their rights. And, and so, yes, in, in that way, it does have a practical importance. Um, but secondly, you know, perhaps more important is the signaling effect of the law. This tells employers who might have been thinking they could get away with firing or refusing to hire somebody because of their sexual orientation that they can. So hopefully that has a, a, a prophylactic effect of avoiding discriminatory acts before they even occur. And I think third, a decision like this inevitably sends signals to the broader society and the broader culture about the place of gay and lesbian and now transgender people in American society. Thanks, Steve. That's Steve Sanders of Indiana University's Morris School of Law. The Supreme Court has ruled that the $8 billion Atlantic Coast Pipeline can cross under the iconic Appalachian Trail, clearing a major legal obstacle that could have derailed the pipeline. The justices ruled 7-2 to two that a lower court overstepped when it canceled a critical permit. Joining me is environmental law professor Pat Parento of the Vermont Law School. How big a win is this for energy companies fighting to expand pipelines and fossil fuel use? Well, I mean, it's one step. It's not a big win. The Atlantic Coast Pipeline itself, is facing four different lawsuits or legal claims against it under the Endangered Species Act. There's an environmental justice claim against one of the compressors that's needed. There's a NEPA, National Environmental Policy Act case. So there's a bunch of hurdles for this particular pipeline, but it certainly does eliminate what could have been a real obstacle. If the Supreme Court had interpreted the Appalachian Trail to be solely within the jurisdiction of the Park Service, there's a law that basically says the Park Service cannot grant a right-of-way or an easement across the trail. So it could have stopped the pipeline for sure. But now that that hurdle has been cleared, there's still a long way to go for this pipeline and many others. The issue was, as you mentioned, the intersection of several federal agencies and the definition of land. Explain those issues and how the court decided them. So it was a 7-2 to two decision, so that was pretty decisive. And what the court basically said is that a trail is an easement. The Appalachian Trail itself is not land. The trail is on land that's managed by the U.S. Forest Service, so it's federally owned land. And the court sort of parsed all of these different statutes to say that a trail isn't land. You know, it's a right-of-way. It's an easement. It allows people to cross the land, but it's not the land itself. You know, that's kind of a technical but sort of common way in which courts sometimes parse the language of statutes. And Justice Sotomayor, in her dissent, said, I don't understand how a trail can't be land. I mean, you have to walk on the land in order to use the trail and in order for the Park Service to administer the trail, which it clearly has the authority to do. It needs to be able to control what's going on on the land. But in any event, it's a classic kind of statutory interpretation where there's potentially conflicting statutes at work, certainly not seamlessly written so that they make clear sense. And the court just came down saying, in this particular case, we think the Forest Service is the right agency to grant the right of way. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote the majority opinion, and he said, quote, Sometimes a complicated regulatory scheme may cause us to miss the forest for the trees. But at bottom, these cases boil down to a simple proposition. A trail is a trail, 
and land is land. Unwind that for me. Well, I mean, he's trying to, you know, simplify the case uh, by saying these are two different things, or at least legally, they're two different things. Um, a trail, you know, like I said, is, it's, a, it's a right of way. It's a right of passage. Um, it's an easement. It, it's only the right to use, not occupy. He made that point. Land is something that has to be occupied, possessed, whereas a trail is just something you use um, by permission. Um, and then, so it, he said it's not like land in that sense. It's just a right to cross the land. Sotomayor, in the sense that I think it's equally simple. Um, you know, there's a definition of, um, there's another law that, that says that this trail is part, it's a unit of the uh, national park system. And the act that governs the national park system defines unit to mean any land on which the trail is located. So Sotomayor did the same thing as Justice Thomas said. I think the, I think the answer is, is straightforward here as well. A trail is land. It's it's a path worn in the land, so it's land. <laughs> that was the difference between the majority, which I said is, is seven members of the court agreed with Thomas, or six agreed with Thomas. So you know it was not a close call, frankly. It was it was pretty decisive. Did they bring out the dictionary for this one? They used to bring out the dictionary a lot. I haven't seen it this term, but uh, especially no. Scalia. I mean, they didn't, just, yeah, that's a famous tactic of Justice Scalia, the textualist. And Justice Gorsuch recently in the Title VII case, that was another situation where you were looking at plain meaning and so forth. But in the pipeline case, Justice Thomas didn't think it was necessary to to consult any particular dictionary. Duke Energy said in a statement, Today's decision is an affirmation for the Atlantic Coast Pipeline and communities across our region that are depending on it for jobs, economic growth, and clean energy. Is that clean energy for real? No, well, clean has to be put in air quotes. Uh, you, you might say relatively clean compared to coal, perhaps, um, which, I mean, coal is, is, is clearly, from an environmental standpoint and a public health standpoint, um, one of the worst sources of energy on the planet um, in, in terms of day-to-day impacts on people, their health and the quality of life. I mean, coal plants are the worst, for sure. So I guess you'd say that gas, providing gas as an alternative to coal, if you look at it that way, it's cleaner. It's not clean in a climate sense because it's a fossil fuel. I mean, gas is methane. 87% of natural gas is methane. So you can talk about this as a gas pipeline, or you could also say it's a methane pipeline. Um, and when we know from all the climate science that we're getting that we can't keep mining, developing, burning gas, any more than we could coal. We've got to completely transition away from fossil fuels. So in that sense, gas pipelines are not clean. They're infrastructure for fuels that are driving um, the climate emergency, as some people would call it. I want to ask you about another aspect of this. Natural Resources Defense Council attorney Jillian Gianetti said that this is an affront to environmental justice and that disproportionately we build infrastructure in poor communities and communities of color and ask them to shoulder the burden. Do you see that as a fact as well? Well, that specific reference is to the compressor station. And these compressor stations are like large buildings. These are major facilities. And they release all kinds of volatile organic compounds 
which are pollutants, of course, which cause terrible respiratory uh, effects, asthma, and other respiratory problems. And for this pipeline, they have proposed to put this compressor station in a black community that is already living with multiple other industrial facilities. It's a typical situation in America. It's all part of whether you call it implicit bias or outright racism. It's all part of an institutional system, including environmental law, including the laws that permit facilities like this that have disproportionate impact on communities of color, so-called frontline communities. So, yeah, I mean, she's right that, you know, the poorer communities, the communities of color are the ones that get saddled with these industrial facilities that nobody else wants in their backyard and to a, a large degree is, is responsible for the fact that these communities are also more vulnerable to things like the COVID outbreak. You know, the Yale study that was issued recently found that black communities are suffering 3.5 times the rate of COVID infections and death as white communities. So it's not hypothetical. It's real. And our laws and our permitting processes are not taking those into account. And the Fourth Circuit reversed the decision to put this particular compressor in this black community. Now, it's temporary. It's another one of these remand to the agency decisions, but it does illustrate the problem. Does this decision have repercussions beyond this situation, you know, the Forest Service versus the National Park Service? This particular decision in this particular case um, is specific to the fact that the Appalachian Trail was crossing uh, the U.S. Forest Service land. Th- there are something like 50 different pipeline crossings of the Appalachian Trail. You know, understand, it's 2,000 miles long. So, <laughs> um, But those are crossings that are on private land. So far, there aren't a whole lot of pipeline cases involving crossings of federal land. Now, if you broaden the question to transmission lines, and if you look across the, the United States at where the transmission lines that exist today and the the ones that we're going to be needing in the future are going to go, then you start to see more conflicts between transmission lines and the national trail system, which is all through the United States. And so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out going forward, because, of course, a lot of those transmission lines also have to be licensed and permitted. um, and, And whether or not there's, there's going to be further litigation over who has the authority to approve those transmission lines when they cross trails that may be on federal land. Those are questions down the road now. But this decision probably signals that trying to block either pipelines or transmission lines using this technique of saying, well, only the Park Service has the authority, that's probably not going to work. This doesn't mean that developers can begin work on the pipeline. What are some of the other hurdles that environmentalists are putting ahead of them? Well, this pipeline will also, because this is a 600-mile, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline is 600 miles long, so it needs wetlands permits under the Clean Water Act from the Corps of Engineers. It it needs the, the state through which the pipeline goes. They need to certify that any federal permit, like the Corps of Engineers permit, is in full compliance with state water quality laws and standards. 
some states, New York, California, Oregon, Washington, have been using that Clean Water Authority to block pipelines and other fossil fuel infrastructure, coal terminals, for example, in the state of Washington. That's a big controversy. The Trump administration is proposing to limit the authority of states to do that, to block these kinds of projects citing water quality concerns. There's endangered species impacts in the Atlantic Coast Pipeline and other pipelines like Keystone XL, and that implicates the Federal Endangered Species Act, and that requires both, you know, a biological opinion that says that the pipeline will not jeopardize any of these species, but it also requires what's called an incidental take permit to allow a pipeline that might have some impact on the species, even though it doesn't jeopardize them. So lots of federal laws involved in these cases, lots of litigation uh, over how those federal laws are being implemented. And, you know, we're still quite a ways from seeing any final resolution of a number of these cases. So now I want to turn to another pipeline issue. The Trump administration is calling on the Supreme Court to freeze a Keystone XL ruling that has stunted the permitting for oil and gas pipelines. Tell us what the Trump administration wants here and why they're involved. So this was a decision by Judge Morris in Montana uh, that uh, overturned what's called a nationwide permit for pipeline construction. And the Corps of Engineers has adopted these nationwide permits, this one is called number 12, to facilitate the review and permitting of these long, linear pipeline-type projects. And um, it's a very truncated uh, kind of process of evaluation. They don't do an environmental impact statement. These permits are actually grants of authority so long as you comply with the conditions that have been published for these permits. You don't even have to go through an individual permit process. So it's a a very quick way of getting approval to lay down these these pipelines. Judge Morris said, yeah, but when you adopted this nationwide permit, you didn't consult with the Fish and Wildlife Service on all the impacts that you're going to have on endangered species as you are building the Keystone Pipeline and other pipelines. And so he overturned the permit. He said, it's illegal. And when he did that, he said, because the permit's illegal, I'm going to enjoin, initially he said this, all the construction in the country under this nationwide permit. None none of it's legal. The Corps of Engineers went back into court and asked him to modify it to limit it to only major pipelines, because this permit covers lots of different activity. And so he did do that, but he still put in place an injunction against any pipeline construction in the country that's relying on this nationwide permit 12. That's the issue that the Trump administration has taken to the Supreme Court. Justice Kagan is assigned to oversee the Ninth Circuit, any of the cases that arise in the Ninth Circuit, because Montana is in the Ninth Circuit. She's the justice that has the authority to issue what's called a stay of Judge Morris's order if she feels it's necessary to do so, she has now ordered the parties, that is the people opposing the pipeline and the government and the pipeline company, uh, to submit briefs by the end of the month. So she's put it on a very fast track to decide, will she lift 
Judge Morris's nationwide injunction or maybe modify it to say, well, I can leave it in place for the Keystone pipeline, but I'm not going to allow it to block all other pipeline construction. So we're going to have to wait to see whether she wants to lift the state in part or in whole or leave it in place until the case has been argued in the Ninth Circuit. And then ultimately, I suppose, it'll come back to the U.S. Supreme Court after that. Thanks for being on Bloomberg Law, Pat. That's Pat Parento of the Vermont Law School. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. Remember to subscribe to our Bloomberg Law podcast for the latest legal news. I'm June Grosso. Thanks for listening. And remember to tune to the Bloomberg Law Show weeknights at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.